Opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. Uh, I'm real excited this afternoon to have a guest with me in the studio, um, and everyone who listens to the show knows I love the face-to-face as opposed to phone calls, so uh, I'm real excited. And before we get started, uh, just a couple quick show notes. Um, if you're listening and you'd like to join in the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. You can call the show by dialing 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. And to learn all about some of our upcoming shows and guests, as well as um, an interview I'm going to be doing tomorrow with Gretchen Carlson um, in preparation for the release of her new book. I'm very excited about this. I'm going to be um, interviewing Gretchen tomorrow. And uh, stay tuned for the release of that interview. It's going to be um, another addition to our On the Road video series that we're doing. Um, you can find everything out at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. So I'd like to welcome to the show my very special guest today. Her name is Adrienne Penta, and Adrienne is the Senior Vice President and Executive Director of the Center for Women and Wealth at Brown Brothers Harriman. Hi. Hi. Welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks and, for having And me. welcome to Philadelphia. Thank you. Yeah, it was great that you were able to kind of combine some work-related <laughs> meetings and mm-hmm. being in the studio mm-hmm. today. So. Yeah. I think there's no replacement for face-to-face. There's I agree not. With you. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so as we always do, I'm going to start out with uh, a little bit about your background and find out who the very young Adrian Penta was <laughs> growing up in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. um, and, and attending the Windsor School, which is an all-girls academy. Um, so just give us a little bit of background on, on your growing up years and your background. Sure. Um, I grew up in a suburb of Boston and... Um, had um, two parents who were really focused on education and the education of girls, which I think um, is a privilege in looking back on that. Um, my mom was an RN by training, um, and my dad was a surgeon, so they met in the operating room <laughs> where my mom was one of the first um, RNs to run the heart-lung machine. And my father um, was um, a general surgeon and was the chief of surgery at our local hospital and um, was a larger-than-life type of guy. He was the greatest generation kind of person and um, grew up during the Great Depression, so he was a lot older than my mom and um, died while I was in college. But it was a huge figure um, in our family and in our lives, and a lot of um, what I do and the work um, that I have since done actually has a lot to do with him, so I'm sure we'll talk about that. Do, do you have sisters? Um, I have one younger brother. One younger brother, so mm-hmm. just the two of you. Yes. Okay. And um, 
tell me what kind of you know influence did mom and dad have on you as far as giving you guidance about mm-hmm. the future and what you're going to mm-hmm. be when you get older and, and <laughs> study in school? Um, the I think the most significant um, lesson that I heard growing up over and over again was um, you have to have an opinion. You have to come with something to say and um, have a perspective and. Um, one of the, and I know we'll talk about all girls schools too, which is one of my favorite topics, but I think one of the, um, one of the parts of growing up that I really credit with a lot of who I am and, and why I'm doing the work I'm doing today is, um, that dinner table conversation, which was, you always had to have an opinion. You always had to come ready to debate and ready to talk and ready to, uh, know what was going on in the world and having read the newspaper, which, uh, was, you know, you know, I think still it affects how I think about my kids and, and what I want to continue for them. Um, So neither of my parents really knew a lot about um, schools or secondary schools, but my mom actually at the time thought, my girl needs a great education and I want to figure out where she can get the very best education that we can find, or, or in, in her opinion at least. And so she went to um, the public library in our town. At the time, there was no online resources. There was no um, way to access anything through social media or the ways that we would think now to, to find out Google, yeah. anything. Yeah. Um, and so she went and looked um, in a directory of independent schools and she found this one school which was an all-girls school called the Windsor School in Boston. And she said, my girl has to go there. And so that's how I ended up at Windsor, was through sort of some very industrious research on her part. Um, and um, and my dad always said, um, you know, I'll, I'll – I'll provide for you as long as you want to go to school. And after that, you're on your own. And education was a huge part of his life, too. He was first generation um, of his family born in the United States and to go to college. And he put himself through Harvard on a full scholarship and then through medical school. Um, So education um, was core to um, certainly my entire life and um, the message that I got from my parents growing up. And and then um, having gone to an all-girls school from sixth grade through 12th grade was probably the greatest gift I've ever had from anybody and um, it's a huge part of who I am and um, and a lot of the work that I do so um, I'm happy to talk more about that too yeah, well t- first of all I love the the message that mom and dad said um, to you about speaking up mm-hmm. right I think mm-hmm. that's such a important message for young women mm-hmm. um, to speak up and speak out whatever you know their opinions might be and you know there are some people that um, think that the you know single gender um, educational, um, environment is not a good thing. Mm. So talk about why you believe it is and, and mm-hmm. what your experience was. Uh, so I'm a big believer in that there's a school for every kid, and um, certainly single sex may not be for everybody. In my case, it was fantastic. Um, I started um, the quietest girl in the back row in the sixth grade, and clearly don't do not do that anymore, um, and became a high school debater and president of the debate club in high school and a college debater and president of the debate club in college. And so obviously I like to talk now. But um, it was, um, you know, I think that the um, behind single sex education, the, the driving um, interest that I have is because there's a role for every kid. And I think that applies to boys as well as girls. And I have a six-year-old boy now who's also in a single sex school. But um, girls can be the scientists. They can be the class president. They can be the jock. They can be anything they want to be. And the same thing for boys when you're not and when you don't have girls in the classroom. They can be the quiet one. They can be the reader. They can be um, the actor. And um, you don't create gender roles for for each set of kids based on based on what their gender is. You create an opportunity to be anything you want to be. And so I think for that reason, 
there's huge opportunity for both boys and girls um, for formative years to be in a single-sex environment. Um, but not for every kid, but for the right kid, I think it's a great gift. So what would you say allowed, you know, if you were, so obviously when you first started, you were on the shy side. Mm-hmm. And what, is it just the fact that there were not boys in the classroom as a distraction that you think kind of helped move you um, to, to yeah. having more confidence? Yeah, that's a great yeah. question. I mean, I think, um, I don't think it was actually, I don't think that was really the reason. I think it was, um, I think it was maturity and I think it was pushing in all the right ways by all the right people. Okay. And um, it was certainly my parents, but it was also, you know, I got taken under the wing of the woman who at the time was the debate coach. And um, she said, oh, you have to come with me. You'd be great at this. And, you know. Were you be- chatty? I wasn't. <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> Um, I wasn't. And I think, um, you know, I think it's um, the opportunity you have to create close relationships in that environment and to be sought out for roles that you probably wouldn't be in an environment where, um, you know, there's boys taking up a lot of airtime or there's other people who are clearly a lot more confident. Um, So I think it's sort of the individualistic approach to um, education is part of it. Um, And that debate coach, you know, she came to my wedding 20 years later. And so, you know, having those types of relationships that can foster in that environment, I think, are really special. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so you went on to get a BA in history and mm-hmm. political science mm-hmm. in, in 2000 from John Hopkins mm-hmm. University. Mm-hmm. Tell me what your aspirations were at that time, <laughs> uh, what you were going to be when you grew up. Right. So I already mentioned that I had um, a father with sort of a larger-than-life persona. And so um, I was going to be a doctor <laughs> when I went to Johns Hopkins and um, started off pre-med. And um, that worked until I hit organic chemistry and then it was very clear that I wasn't going to be a physician. Um, But, you know, that really um, played a lot into my decision about where I went to school and how I started off. And um, I ended up in history and political science just because those are the majors people choose when they're great readers and writers. And and I had sort of a traditional liberal arts background having come from the school where I came from where expository writing was really important. And and so history and political science were what I gravitated to because, you know, I liked analytical thinking. I liked analytical writing and um, and same thing with law school I ended up in law school because that's what you do if you're a lawyer and so um, that's how I followed that path I think all the way through Hopkins political science history um, wrote my thesis on um, women's rights um, and ended up in law school just because that was that was um, not only very interesting to me it just came very naturally you mentioned that your dad passed mm-hmm. while you were in college. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what uh, that? Sure. Um, so you know, without a doubt, the most formative experience of my life. Um, he died suddenly, um, and I was a senior in college, and um, it was a week before I got admitted to law school. So he never knew that I went to law school. But um, it was, um, so, and I've had time to reflect, sort of, in the past year or so, about about why um, I've chosen a lot of the priorities I have in my role. So I, so he died suddenly. He didn't really have a great estate plan. Um, my mom had never really been involved in his planning. I didn't mention um, initially, but he had three children from a prior marriage. Um, and he had a very simple plan. I mean, he didn't do a lot of planning. He left everything outright to my mom, which is sort of, an, you know, we call them in estate planning terminology, and I love you well, right? And it's the simplest thing you can do. It's just so that your, your assets pass according to your will versus um, under state law. So that's what he had, which was not an appropriate estate plan because he was a surgeon, but he liked to do a lot of investing on the side. He had a whole bunch of assets spread out all over that were sort of a mess. And um, and so he died suddenly, and my mom was 52, and he had, was 72 when he died. And um, 
And the um, one of the first things that happened was um, the estate got sued. And um, I don't know if I've ever talked about this publicly before, but um, so we went for, through a very long piece of probate litigation, which was horrible, obviously, um, for my mom and for us um, and for Family Harmony. Um, but what came out of it is that my mom found some really excellent estate planning attorneys who really became um, huge sources of comfort and personal friends they came to my wedding um and you know and so that's how um in a lot of ways i ended up being so i went to law school and i became an estate planning attorney so long story short um and so it was really because of that experience and because of the value i saw that they could add as counselors for families really in their darkest moment in a time of need when there weren't a lot of other people who could really provide that type of counsel or solace um, that she needed. And I was in college, and so I wasn't any help. My brother was even younger, and so she had a lot to handle on her own, and she'd never really um, dealt with finances or dealt with planning right. or dealt with real estate or dealt with where assets were or any of that yeah. Um, yeah. kind of thing. She had her hands full with two kids and running household and all those other things. And so I saw her for the first time um, in that role, and it wasn't a seamless transition for sure. And many women um, all over the world, and you know whether they have um, you know minimal assets or a lot of assets, have the same struggles. And um, so, thinking about working with women certainly is it comes a lot out of that experience. Um, and it's even I think a leap further the work that we're doing right now, and we'll get into this later, I'm sure. But um, at Brown Brothers in the Center for Women and Wealth is about how do we communicate with our families about planning and how do we tell our story to our children, to our spouses, to the people who are going to inherit the stuff from us? Because it's not about the stuff, right? It's never about the stuff. Um, litigation in families is never about, really, about money. No. It's about feelings and it's about having the last word right yeah that will yeah. or that trust that's the last word for better or worse and mm -hmm. um, it can be very hurtful if you don't understand and so a lot of the work we're doing now is about family communication and it's really only in the last couple of months that I've had the realization um, that oh this is the conversation I wish I could have with my father or that he could have with us and for us to know why he did what he did and what how he was thinking about this and the conversation we never had and um, for most families they don't have that conversation because most people don't want to talk to their children about money. And I think that the greatest thing we can do for our clients is to give them the gift of having that conversation before it's too late. That's right. Oh my gosh. You know, it's fascinating to me on so many levels to hear you talk about this because so many women that I have interviewed who are in finance or, or um, estate planning and all mm -hmm. of that, nine times out of 10, the reason they got into it was because of their own experience mm -hmm. as a mm -hmm. young person and in their family. And so, you know, the fact that today we're talking about why it's so important and how it will be um, so beneficial to everyone in the future to talk about these issues uh, within their family. Right. And it's just historically was not, it was a private right. topic, right? right? It was a private topic. And mm -hmm. when women are left to deal with it and they don't have the experience, um, it can be really difficult. Mm -hmm. Now, it was interesting to me, you said you wrote your thesis on women's rights, <laughs> right? So there was something in you mm -hmm. prior to mm -hmm. getting involved in this organization that was already in you. Where, where did that come from? For sure. Um, I think, so a lot of it comes from my all-girls education, right? We know as girls, we were taught that we can do anything and go anywhere and be whoever we want. And then right. um, there's... Uh, 
so that, that's part of it for sure. And my own mom is definitely a great example of that. And um, you know, came from rural Maine, and um, you know, has done so many really wonderful, interesting things with her life and her philanthropy, and how she's worked with organizations. And um, kids are her most important cause. And uh, you know, she ran for. Um, she ran for office in, in Florida where she lives and she's just done so much and um, it's a great example yet we know that there's still there still are some limitations so I mean it's just um, doing this work has just been it's the best job I'll ever have yeah. and I, I think I have enough understanding to know that right now yeah so tell you know again your um, your title is mm-hmm. Executive Director for the Center for Women and Wealth. Mm-hmm. And um, it's only been two years, right. right? It launched in 2015. Yes. So how has the focus changed, mm-hmm. if indeed it has, mm-hmm. over the past two years mm-hmm. with what the goals were when mm-hmm. it launched and, and what you're doing mm-hmm. today? So when I wrote the business plan and I guess it was 2014 really, um, it was really about there's this huge opportunity in the market and um, there's a huge level of dissatisfaction just generally with women in financial advice. And I think that we've gotten more nuanced in how we understand how we can how we can create this holistic understanding of wealth. And you know, we started off really wanting to connect the dots for women. For everybody, really, the the you know between you, me, and all of our friends listening at home, the secret of our work is that it's actually just as applicable to men as it is to women, right. yeah. and it's just that women are more often than not driving the conversation. And so when we launched, we really wanted to look at the intersection of wealth and family and values, and how do these things come together into one holistic conversation, one big conversation, one big life. Right? We don't stop thinking about our children when we're thinking about planning. We don't stop thinking about uh, you know, our jobs when we're thinking about our kids. You you know, we said at the beginning of this, there's no such thing as work-life balance when we were, were chatting before. It's how does everything run together? And the right. word that I use more often now is integration. How do we integrate all these different parts of our life? So in essence, that's what the Center for Women and Wealth has always been. Where I think we've gotten deeper is we've really um, thought about um, where is the data in terms of what happens with families with wealth and where do they go off the tracks and where can we really help them right the ship and um, for estate planners and wealth managers and all sorts of people who work with wealthy families um, they know that the second and third generations are often not as successful as the first generation and there's something that happens between g1 and g2 and g2 and g3 um, that that oftentimes means the family loses what they've earned, right? We all know the phrase shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. So how do we help families figure out those issues in a data-driven way? So we've done a lot of reading, we've done a lot of thinking, and we've done a lot of our own research on our own client base around where does this go wrong? And um, it doesn't go wrong with poor investment management or poor tax planning or any of the things that you would think of traditionally. The issues are lack of communication in families, lack of trust, and not preparing heirs for what they're about to inherit. So we need to be a lot more deliberate and intentional about all of those things. And so, as I mentioned before, we're doing a lot of work around um, values, around wealth. How do we help clients understand what their values are, the values that they actually use as they navigate the world and they spend time and money on things? And then how do they articulate them in a way um, that's accessible to the next generation and start a real discussion about that? Um, Not one that's just about, okay, we have X amount of dollars and here's what's going to happen in the plan, but 
why did I do it that way? And what does it mean to me? And what do I think our mission as a family is? What do you think our mission as a family is? And how do we together come, come together as a family to, to think about that, to do that work, and to make sure it lives beyond this conversation, this moment, my lifetime, um, and even your lifetime into, into the future for our descendants? You know, aside from um, the data, I, I think we do a lot of research around mm-hmm. things today that sometimes I think are just common sense. And, and if you look um, a little bit more on the surface, you'll see what, what the answer mm-hmm. is. And I, when, when you sit with clients, I would imagine that it often just comes back to lifestyle. Mm-hmm. What lifestyle are you looking to live? Mm-hmm. And if you know, if it's if it's uh, the right one for you, then then often more often than not, um, the money kind of gets is t- is taken care of. I mm-hmm. should say. Mm-hmm. Do you see that with clients that it's really more about what, what lifestyle they're choosing to live and how they want to live, mm-hmm. um, rather than the facts, black and white facts of the money mm-hmm. and and where it's going to be spent. Yeah, there's nothing black and white about talking to families about money. And it's all tied up in emotions and values and things that they remember from their own childhood. Right. And um, and so it is often about lifestyle. And it's it's a little even a little bit more, I think it's more about lifestyle. And what lifestyle do I want my children to see me living? What lifestyle do I want to live? How do I live what my values are? You know, all of these things. Even if I have enough money to, tr- to fly private every single time I go anywhere, should yeah. I be doing that? Right. Right? Right. And what does that say to the people around me? Right. What does it say about how I view money? What does it say about how I value my time or value my money? And, you know, there's a lot of really complicated questions, I think, in how we spend that, um, that certainly, you know, you, you know, and how we think about wealth management now are, are definitely tied up in that equation. It's not just how you invest. It's how you spend. It's how you save. It's how you give. It's how you choose to plan for the future um, and what you choose not to spend on, too. So I think you're right. It does come back to lifestyle, and um, the questions are more complicated than they seem sometimes. They are, especially when they become personal and mm-hmm. about relationships, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you mentioned the phrase holistic approach to mm-hmm. wealth, and we hear that a lot. Actually, we the word holistic is being used around a lot of different things today, mm-hmm. and I think it's smart. Um, I wonder if you can talk about the different... I would imagine women naturally um, look at things more holistically than men. First of all, do you see that in the work that you do, because you work with both men and women? And how does that play out when you're trying to um, uh, help a man or a woman to look at the whole picture? Do you mm-hmm. find it's easier with women than it is with men? Mm-hmm. That's a great conversation. That's a great question, um, and I don't. I don't know if I can sort of throw the net over all men or all women. What I will say is that um, I think women are driving us to have better conversations about money. And uh, so, as I said before, I think all of this is just as applicable to men as it is to women, because men and women both care about their families. They both care about their children. They both care about the legacy they leave behind. I think that there is something um, for men that allows them to be, um, if not satisfied, permit a conversation that's only focused on investing. And I think it's, um, I think men and women do sometimes see the world differently. And I think that there's some data and there's some research on this, right, about how men connect versus how women connect. And um, men tend to connect based on, 
based on information, based on learning how to do something, right? Let me teach you how to build a computer, or let me teach you how to swing a golf club. But when women get together, we connect based on um, intimacies. How are your children? Do you have children? Where'd you go on vacation? Yeah. Um, what's going on in your career? How are you doing? How are you feeling? Um, so there is definitely something um, about men and women and how they connect with each other, how they connect with information. So what I've seen in my practice is that um, men are often okay with spending 60 minutes at the table with their advisor talking about performance of investments, manager selection, security selection, which is all very important, but it's not more important than the other parts of the conversation, which is how does this affect my lifestyle? How does it affect how much I can give to charity this year? How does it affect what my estate plan should look like or how I should speak to my kids about this? And I think women um, find that conversation important and valuable as well, but not to the exclusion of the other stuff. So when we have a conversation just about the metrics, just about the numbers, it doesn't fulfill um, some sort of other need or interest, I think, that a lot of our female clients have. Would you say that that's women's desire to uh, attain wealth, to be able to have an impact, mm -hmm. a positive impact in their community and in the world where uh, men look at wealth as a, as a uh, way to be secure mm -hmm. for security mm -hmm. for themselves and their family? Mm -hmm. I, I think you're right. I think that women see wealth as a means to an end right? I can do this. I can give this. I can be involved here or there or travel because I have it. I think men, um, sometimes, and not all men, right? You can't, you can't generalize this way, but tend to see it as a thing that you feed and you water and you think about and you take care of unto itself, which, you know, um, everybody has their own perspective. And it's certainly, I think it's based very much in where we've come from and our experiences at a very young age around money. Um, but I think if you were to generalize, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, I read often the, 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 the number that 51% of U.S. Mm -hmm. wealth um, is now controlled by women. Mm -hmm. And first I want you to talk about what does that mean exactly, mm -hmm. that it's controlled by women. And if that is the case, why is there still so much um, uh, struggle for women to receive capital mm -hmm. from uh, angel investors and mm -hmm. venture capitalists? It's a great question, and I don't think we have all the answers to that yet. Um, so 51% of personal wealth in the United States is controlled either solely or jointly um, by women. So um, either they're a joint decision maker with somebody else or they control it solely, I think, is, is the statistic you're referring to. So on the funding issue, I think it's really complicated, whereas... 51% of personal wealth is controlled by women. I think I think it's 6% of VC venture capital partners are women. I mm -hmm. think it's I think it's something like that. 6 or 7. Yeah, seven it's today. not high. Yeah, Maybe no. it's 7. Uh, it's below 10. As of today. <laughs> <laughs> so there's not a lot of women in um, investing positions so that are making decisions about investments of venture capital or private equity dollars. So um, I think that we all see the world through our own lens. And, um, you know, there are some products that I don't use because of who I am or how I work that I, I don't know whether or not that's a good investment. So I think that um, we, and I think this applies to all types of diversity, not just gender diversity, that in order to make, and there's some interesting data that recently came out um, around um, women hedge fund managers, right, are outperforming um, male hedge fund managers by a, a significant percentage the year to date. And I think that this just pleads the case for diversity, right? Diversity of all kinds, not just gender diversity, that there's value 
Um, it's a little bit shocking we're still having this conversation, but there's value in having a lot of perspectives around the table because different perspectives mean that we have a more well-rounded investment thesis. Um, so, um, so I don't know, well, there's a lot of reasons I think we don't have more women investors, but I think that that's part of the problem. Um, and I think that there is unconscious bias still in all sorts of ways. And it's not just men who have an unconscious bias, everybody has unconscious bias, right? We, we use the words unconscious bias um, as a negative thing. Unconscious bias is only negative when it hurts somebody or prevents us from capitalizing on an opportunity. Unconscious bias is not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's the assumptions we make every day in order to be able to move efficiently throughout the world. We don't think about we don't think about most of the decisions we make. We don't think about most of the information we take in because we couldn't. We couldn't function if we did that. But um, unconscious bias is only bad when we don't realize it, and it's it's making us make bad decisions. Um, so we all have bias. The question is, um, how do we become more aware of it? So I think that there's probably still some bias baked into a lot of those non-diverse investment teams that they're thinking a similar way about a, a set of products that they may not understand, or maybe they think a certain way about a founder or when and she or he walks into the room and they don't look like they think they're going to look or they mm -hmm. don't have the background they think they're going to have. Um, and we all do that. We, it's just part of life. So yeah. the question is, how do, we, how do we have less of that? How do we combat that? I, I think that's so interesting. I've, I've not heard someone talk about unconscious bias and say that it's, it's not a negative. And I think you're right because it's, you know, we have experiences. We have mm -hmm. life experiences. And so then you have personal views. And if something is familiar to you, you're going to go to that past experience. So when it comes to women in, in the workplace, mm -hmm. um, what kind of conversations can we and should we be having with men mm. to make them aware that they may have some preconceived notions <laughs> or unconscious bias <laughs> that is, you know, not fair to that particular right. moment in time? Mm -hmm. So I think there's lots of different tips floating around out there about unconscious bias in the workplace. Um, one tool that I really like, if there's a way to insert it into a conversation, is the IAT, the um, Implicit Association Test, because you could take it, I can take it, and we all have bias about something. And um, there's lots of different versions of the IAT based on race, based on gender, based on um, lots of how we look, um, all kinds of things. And so to fiddle around with that, and it it's, it's a game, and so to fiddle around with that on a you know some night while you're sitting in front of the TV isn't a bad thing to do, and I think it teaches all of us that we have some of these baked-in assumptions. Um, the other the other the other tool that I've seen and heard of and used is you need a buddy in the workplace, right? You need somebody else that can call it out, um, a man or a woman on your behalf to say, "Hey, actually, Susan just said that." Right. Yeah. And I mean, we all know this stuff. Great I mean, idea. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so um, or or whatever, whatever the issue is at the time. And, you know, I think it's actually more helpful if it's a man, to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, we all need other women in our in our lives. But um, sometimes to have another man at the table who sees it and says, hey, actually, you know, so and so just said that or can even have a private moment after after a group meeting or something like that that says, I, I know you didn't realize it, but hey, this is what I saw. Um, and we talk a lot about that at Brown Brothers, which is when you see something, you have to talk about it afterward. And we have to create environments where we can have these conversations and create cultures of inclusion. And I think we've been working hard on that. Um, and it's not sometimes the easiest thing to do to have a workplace where you can um, talk to a colleague about, hey, you saw it this way, I saw it that way. 
let's chat about it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's all it is. Because I don't think that, um, you know, I'm an optimist at heart. I don't think anybody is intentionally um, biased in, right. in our workplace, certainly. Nobody is. And everybody wants to do the right thing and wants to be as inclusive as possible. And we're doing lots to encourage that. And I think um, that... The intentions are good, so how do we let the intentions come through? And I think it's sometimes just awareness. Yeah, I agree. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When Excellent. we come back, I want to talk to you about other than mom and dad who may have had an influence on you in your career. Okay. We'll be right back. This is Kristen Hilsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hilsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net and our own website, foleyhillsleygroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird & Company, member SIPC. Log on to FoleyHillsleyGroup.com to learn more. That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y Group.com. Or call... 610-238-6636. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to another week of Women to Watch on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Adrian Penta. Uh, Adrian Penta is Senior Vice President with Brown Brothers Harriman and the Executive Director for for the Center for Women and Wealth. <laughs> it's, it's a mouthful. <laughs> so um, I, I always love to ask my guests about people that have been in their lives that perhaps um, have said something to mm -hmm. them that has stayed with them or has been an ongoing advocate mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and support and mentor. Is there somebody that, that you think about in the forefront that, that you could sure. tell us about? I feel like I've been very lucky. I've had a lot of mentors and sponsors and people who have invested in my career, and I don't think that um, anybody gets anywhere without having lots of people pulling the oar in the same mm -hmm. direction. So um, I, I there's lots of um, there's lots of reasons I'm here, but it's lots of different people. Um, so 
my first workplace mentor was um, a guy named Charles Cheever, who is now the managing partner of Choate Hall and Stewart in Boston. And um, I worked for Charles for five years right out of law school. And he was a big part of why I became a trust and states lawyer. He was also a graduate of University of Virginia Law School, which is where I went, and um, was just a great teacher. Um, there's certain people that you meet along the way that are great teachers and are willing to invest their time and their energy in you. And he taught me a lot of what I know about um, estate planning, but also about how to cl manage clients, how to manage workplace relationships, lots of different things. The one thing that Charles used to say to me, sometimes I can be overzealous, um, <laughs> um, is... <laughs> I can't um, imagine that. <laughs> uh, and it stays with me to this day, which is um, don't get too high, don't get too low. And uh, I take that and I apply it to lots of different, lots of different issues in my life. And um, whether it's something that happened that wasn't great, and we feel like we've taken two steps back from our mission, or in a client relationship, or whatever it may be, you know. And then when something great happens, and we win a new client, or we win, you know, we had a great piece of media or PR or whatever it is, you know, stay the course <laughs> and keep moving in the right direction. Yeah. And um, the highs are maybe not as high as you think they are, and the lows are certainly not as low. So mm -hmm. I think that is great advice that I carry with me all the time. The other person who's um, a sage and um, everybody listens to him on CNBC is our chief investment um, strategist at Brown Brothers, Scott Clemens, who um, just, you know, uh, you know, disperses pieces of wisdom wherever he goes. And I've been lucky to um, have some of his time and guidance. And, uh, you know, the great advice that I got from him is, you know what success looks like. And um, stay focused on that and keep moving towards it. And I think that's advice that all of us should take. And sometimes we say, oh, geez, am I doing this right? Is this the right, are these the right metrics? Is this the right thing to do? Are we doing this right? Let's second guess what we've been doing. You know, I think women have this imposter syndrome thing we think about a lot. And, mm. you know, we, we lie in bed at night thinking, is is any of this right? <laughs> Never mind um, one piece of it. And I'm, I'm not immune from that. And, uh, you know, Scott's advice, you know what success looks like. You do know what success looks like, you know. And for women who are, um, you know, writing their own business plans, who are entrepreneurs, or who are just executing on their their plan for the year, you know, you know what success looks like. So keep doing that. Um, interesting. You mentioned imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. and um, I think it's an important topic for women mm -hmm. because we, I think we naturally, and you're, I can see you mentioned the word um, overzealous. <laughs> I can feel your energy across the table, and it's wonderful. And if, you know, and you're you're a smiler, and you're um, enthusiastic. And I think that women go about their day not wanting to burden others. So we always kind of put on this mm -hmm. face that everything's mm -hmm. fabulous. Mm -hmm. So share with us something that's hard for you, mm -hmm. you know, that maybe is a, a personal challenge. That's something that you have to work on um, on a regular basis because we yeah. all have something. Yeah, I mean, I think that and this is not unique, I'm sure. I think probably every single woman in the world feels this way. Um, that you always, you, you never know if you're in the right place, right? At the right place in the right time with the right people, meaning, you know, it's hard sometimes leaving the house in the morning and or not being at a children's event or a sporting event or there for parent-teacher day or whatever and the you have thing young is. Children, right? I, I have a three and a six-year-old. Three and six, and, yeah. um, and I found some peace with that recently because I realized that I love what I do so much and um, and there's no place I'd really rather be because I um, this the job that I get to do is a huge gift and um, I know that I have a luxury of being able to do work I love with people I love for an organization that's fabulous and I've been there almost 10 years and um, I wouldn't want to do anything else um, but 
even given all of that, and I know that I'm lucky to have that situation, you know, there are days when I'm thinking, oh, geez, I wish I could just be home, or I wish I could just be. Or should I be home? Or should, like, I, should I, be home, I be home? Or today? I wish I could be with my kids, or I wish I could leave my <laughs> lovely husband with some, some responsibility or burden when I'm, you know, in Philadelphia or yeah. at a client dinner or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, and same thing with, you know, the different charitable organizations that I'm involved with that I um, sometimes don't do as much as I'd want to do or um, miss a board meeting or miss a, you know, whatever it is. I mean, yeah. we all, um, everybody, and I think this is all women everywhere who have these busy, relentless schedules and um, a barrage of email that I don't think anybody can really keep up with. Mm. You know, there's always something competing for your time. So finding peace with where you are and what you're doing and who you're with um, is something that I struggle with. And um, I know that we all do. And I'm trying to find some peace of mind and mindfulness on that. So if anyone has any suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> Call in. Yeah, you let do. me know. Call in. Um, you mentioned, you know, the, the organizations that you're involved with. Mm. I'm just going to name a few because mm. you, you sit on several boards. Uh, New America's Better Life Lab, which mm. I want to ask you mm -hmm. what that's about. Women Founders and Funders Connect. Mm -hmm. The Windsor School Board of Trustees. Mm -hmm. The Windsor School Corporation. <laughs> the Emerald Necklace Conservancy Board mm -hmm. of Directors and the Boys and Girls Club of Boston. Mm. And I know there's more. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. First, I want to ask you, do you know how to, can you say no? I'm not very good at saying no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to help you with that. That's a lot of stuff. When I was reading it, I was feeling a little, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, I guess one of my questions for you, because you, you are someone who is enthusiastic and wants to help, mm -hmm. right? And you have the skills for it. Mm. So what is your philosophy for having the greatest impact mm. in these roles when mm -hmm. you have so many? Mm -hmm. That's the first question I want to ask. Yeah, so the, I, so, okay, so the first answer is I really only accept positions um, that I really feel passionate about. And so, so many of those organizations are very near and dear to my heart. Um, the Windsor School is this girl school that I went to and um, I just, it's the most important place that I've been and um, has shaped so much of my life. So there's no question that I would go back and give to Windsor and um, just love the people on the board and the school and the whole thing. Um, Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston, we live next door to one of the Boys and Girls Clubs in the city. Oh, and well, um, yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. having young children in an urban environment and you know, thinking about education and access and support, those things are just really hit home to me. And that's one of the greatest organizations in the city of Boston is Boys and Girls Club. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, um, I find it hard to say no when I believe in an organization and feel really passionately about it. Um, there are other organizations that I do say no to. Um, and I try to pick my spot. So for the Boys and Girls Club, I've been on their plan giving advisory council because that's my background and I'm a state planning attorney by training. Um, and so I try to really pick the area where I have um, you know, expertise or some sort of experience that can really make me a unique contribution versus just doing everything for everybody. Um, I think as a young professional, you try to do everything for everybody because your value is not economic, right? You're not gonna write the mm -hmm. biggest check. It's not influence, it's not power. It's you're a worker bee. And so I did for a very, to, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I did for a very long time <laughs> fill the worker bee seat and did a lot of work for a lot of organizations and I've tried to think more carefully about that. So would you say you're happily involved in all of these things or do you have days where you're stressed and mm. you're feeling like you're falling <laughs> short? 
I think I can see on your face the answer. <laughs> Every day is perfect. <laughs> no, there are days that I feel stressed, and I, yeah. I said, why did I say yes to that? Um, I think traveling alone uh, traveling. is stressful. Yeah. Right? So Yeah. I mean, travel alone is, is great in some ways because <laughs> you don't have children or coworkers or anybody else with you know, share of your time. But, um, no, I, you know, I've tried to be thoughtful about what my charitable mission is and it's definitely around kids and education. Okay. And that's where I am right now in my life. I don't think that's unique to a a mom of young children or, Mm -hmm. um, somebody, um, in my position. But so I've tried to really, um, hone in on those areas that are consistent with what I think of as my mission right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that'll evolve over time. And, um, so I'm going to say no more. And I have said no recently. <laughs> I will tell you, because I'm older than you, that it does get easier as you get older, right? Because you have the ability to say, been there, done that, right. and I, I survive, right? Right. So it does get easier. <laughs> um, you mentioned education. And today, I think what's so wonderful is that our daughters, and we, we both have daughters, mm-hmm. it really is an amazing time for women. There's so much um, support and resources and advocacy mm-hmm. that's really lifting them up and saying you truly, truly uh, can pursue whatever you want. Um, and there's organizations like Girls Who Code and Girl Up with the UN. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me what you you believe is the best messaging we can give to young women so that they don't feel the pressure mm-hmm. of having to do so much, mm-hmm. but they can really look within and, and kind of you know follow their heart, mm-hmm. do what they're meant to do. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I think we have to teach girls just like we teach boys to be advocates for themselves. And um, one of the more influential books I've read over the past few years is The Confidence Code by mm-hmm. Claire Shipman and Katie Kay, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. And and being sort of where I am in life with young children, what I really took away from that is we use different language with boys and girls when they're young. And um, I've tried to be much more intentional and thoughtful about the language that I use with my kids. And um, part of it is that we need to teach girls that it's okay to be bold and it's okay to take action. And it's okay to jump off the swing set and take a risk, right? Because that's mm-hmm. what we're trying to teach girls. It's okay to take a risk if you need to take a risk. And for boys, it's okay to be emotional. It's okay to be nurturing. It's okay to be caring, right? Yeah. We need to provide the full array of opportunities for each kid, um, no matter whether they're boy or girl. And so I think that's part of it is that girls can be in any role that they want to be in and that they can take risks and failure is not that bad. And so I think that that's the key, the key message that I got from, from, from Claire and Katie's work is that we need to teach girls specifically that failure is okay. And having, having a young boy as well, you can see boys just fail all the time, partly because they're boys, partly because they're, um, you know, for lots of different reasons, but they, you know, they swing the bat and they miss. It's okay. They raise their hand and they have the wrong answer. It's okay. And they just have that gene. And so, um, that I think is part of it. Um, in my specific area around sort of women and wealth, you know, I think we need to start talking to girls about finance much younger. Mm-hmm. And I think um, Girls Who Invest is a great organization as well. You mentioned a bunch of organization that's talking to college women about careers in finance. Hugely important to get more diversity in our field. But let's back it up too. Let's tar- start talking to middle school and high school girls about finance because I think the more we can demystify what it is and what we do and how it works, I think the better. I mean, the the 
industry that I'm in is really just about relationships. And right. um, it's a great industry for women. And every time I get sort of the, the soapbox, I, I try to say that this is a huge opportunity for women to be in wealth management or financial advisory or any of those ancillary fields. Because as you said, women control 51% of personal wealth and they're going to control more, not less over time. And currently 86% of financial advisors are men. And so there's just a big opportunity for women to you know, come into this field and to be in high demand and to, um, to really excel because they innately understand a lot of the EQ skills mm-hmm. and um, the emotion, have the emotional intelligence to work with clients. So, um, so not one answer, but many answers. Yeah, well, I, I agree, number one. And I think even for myself personally, as I've gotten older, um, I think at, at one point the word money was kind of a negative mm. word for me. And I think it's important that we teach young girls and women that it's not, you know, money is not a negative term. It's, you know, we live in a world where, you know, we have to um, create some kind of income for ourselves mm-hmm. and wealth in order mm-hmm. to, to continue to live. And it can also be used for very good mm-hmm. purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, women are always wanting to, you know, help others and mm-hmm. make the world a better place. Um, can you tell me in a time in your career where perhaps being a woman, because again, in working in finance, there's a lot of men in the, in the industry, um, where the outcome was what it was because you were a woman or mm. did you ever receive any pushback mm. um, from mm. a man and, and if so how did you deal with it it's mm. a great question um, so I, you know I wouldn't have the job I have now if I weren't a woman so I think that's um, you know it's led me down this very unique and winding path and um, you know the Center for Women and Wealth um, you know we're we're, I think we're being effective and the firm's investing in it, not only because I'm a woman, but because the woman, the person I report to is a woman, which is very unusual. Um, the partner of Brown Brothers who runs wealth management is Catherine George, who um, you know, believes and um, understands our business on a gut level. So I think that that's um, influenced the path of this 200-year-old private bank, having um, Catherine um, as a partner in that position to, to have a voice um, with her partners and how, we, and how we move forward the Center for Women and Wealth. Um, you know, I think that in a in a planning or an advisory capacity, I think that the types of conversations I've been able to have with clients are often um, more emotional. I was actually just in a meeting before this where I was talking to a woman actually who works in development at one of your big hospitals here in Philadelphia, and she said, you know, I just really wanted to ask this person, what happens when he dies? What does he want to happen? And I said, well, that's fascinating because I think s- women are so much more comfortable talking about death or dying um, than men are. Um, And the number of times that I've seen a male advisor talk about dying in a client um, um, meeting is, you know, are numbered because I think that they're, they're, it's an emotional topic, it's right? An emotional topic. And it's yeah. hard to talk about. I was once sitting with um, a, a trust and estates attorney who was um, from an outside firm who was many years my senior, and we were sitting with our mutual clients, and we were talking about their estate plan and what they were planning on doing, what they wanted to change. And uh, he said, every time he said, um, when you pass, God forbid. <laughs> Every single time I prefer he said the it. word pass over death myself. <laughs> he said, God forbid, though. And it's right. like, nobody God can forbid it. It's going to happen. <laughs> it's just going to happen. <laughs> it's in all of our futures. It's going to happen. Um, so I think that um, the emotional quality of the conversations that you can have as a woman with a client sitting across the table, for whatever reason, um, you know, has created 
these, un, you know, conversations that sometimes I didn't expect or clients that would tell me things that they wouldn't necessarily um, tell another member of the team or another advisor. Um, I recently had a client call me and we did a lot of work um, with him and his family um, back in 2011 and 2012 when the tax laws were changing and he funded a substantial trust for his children. And um, he's now at a point where um, his um, one of his children has abused the trust and um, has asked for a lot of distributions for a lot of things that um, the dad doesn't really think that he should, and so they're at this point where sort of their relationship is sort of disintegrating over mm -hmm. some of the some of the issues that have come up. And he said, "I'm I'm going to write him a letter, and I want you to look at the letter." And I he mean, was going to write a letter to his, his son. Oh, it's to his son. And okay. um, and so and he said, "I'm sending you the letter to look at," and it's an incredibly personal letter between a father and a son, and mm -hmm. about how he feels about things the son has said and maybe not said, and how he's used this money that his dad worked really hard for and thought it was this really um, special gift. And he's spent down this entire, you know, several million dollars in the last couple of years. Wow. And um, and that's that's a tough conversation between anybody, right? Um, even if it's somebody who's a close personal friend or advisor or confidant. And um, to have that level, and I'm not to say that men don't, but I feel like I've been really privileged and honored that I have um, so many of those wonderful close client connections that I think that there's something to do with sort of um, uh, the emotional quality of those relationships that has to do with being a woman. I think that says so much about you that he shared that letter with you, mm -hmm. right? And he saw enough or knew enough mm -hmm. to do that, that, mm -hmm. that he wanted to kind of bounce that off you and see how it would be received. Mm. And it's a privilege to be involved in conversations like that with clients. Yeah. So, so much of, you know, it's interesting, so much of, you know, when it, at the end of the day, business is people mm -hmm. and relationships. Mm -hmm. And so for whatever reason, women are always more comfortable talking about emotional topics and, and relationships than men. So what do you do when you get some pushback, when you're with a man who's just, when those conversations have to be mm -hmm. had and they're not comfortable with mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. um, I think you have to pick your spot. And you don't have to have every conversation, and you don't have to have every conversation right now. And I think that, so with the emotional content of these conversations, you know, a lot of what we're thinking about is um, how do we get our clients to share more with their children and to have these conversations mm -hmm. about wealth and values with their children now? And um, not unusual that the patriarch, the wealth creator in many situations says, I don't want to tell my kids. I'm afraid they're going to become demotivated. It's none of their business. Mm -hmm. um, lots of different excuses. And the question that they usually ask is, well, I'm not going to tell them anything right now. So when should I tell them? <laughs> so not a, not a question that's easy to answer, but partly because it's the wrong question, right? The question should not be, when am I going to um, reveal to them the, the number on my bank account statement? It should be, how do I start having a dialogue that lasts for a really long time, that maybe starts when your kids are five or six and lasts until right. they're adults, and you infuse into that conversation the values you hope um, that they carry forward or the legacy that you want to pass on along with this wealth or the where did your foundational views about wealth come from, right? And when we, when we start thinking about that, we all think back to when we were children, right? I think back to, um, I still think that um, on a weekend, a Saturday or Sunday with my own children, that it's a really special thing to go out and treat them to a donut, right? Not only because it's not the best food to eat, but because um, that's what I used to do with my dad. Oh. And um, he, it used to be just me and him, and we'd go 
out every month or two months or whenever, and we'd go and get a donut together. And so, you know, whenever you think about where did my values come from, how do I think about how I spend either my time or my money, it all comes from these these moments, these glimpses that we had when we were young. And um, for a lot of families, it's, you know, well, when I saw my dad go to work or when I toured the family business or when I, you know, whatever whatever your first memory is of something like that. And so to help people reach back to that and to understand where some of this, some of these values come from, where the resistance come from and to unpack why they don't want to do it. Yeah. And so uh, that's challenging with yeah. a lot of, um, with a lot of clients generally and especially, um, Sorry about that. That's a <laughs> <laughs> We're in a Helicopter wind tunnel here. Going over, right over the studio. Uh, so I think what I've learned is we don't have to we don't have to figure that out right now, right? You have to build to that conversation, and then you have to build to a communication plan. For for the listeners who perhaps have young children mm. and they're thinking, okay, I understand why it's important to start talking to our kids about money mm. at, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So can you share, sure. you know, how you have two young children yeah. and give examples of how you, you know, bring that into your conversations yeah. with them? Um, I'd love to. And we actually are just about to publish an article on this. But um, so I think so there's a couple different things. So one is we need to help our kids differentiate between wants and needs. Do I need that or do I want it? And um, little kids want a lot of stuff. They want it, right. <laughs> Everything they see, they want. <laughs> right. And so you don't need to beat them over the head with it. But I think there's opportunities to differentiate. Do you want, you know, do you want those Pokemon cards or do you need those? Po- I need them, Mom. Why, why, you, you know, why do you need them? <laughs> and so there, there, you know, there are opportunities like that. There are, I think there's a lot of opportunities that could just come up in daily life. This is not a let's sit down at Thanksgiving dinner and I'm going to tell you everything I know about right. finance. It's right? not a workshop. It's not. No. It's, it's in the car as you're going to school or it's, you know, I came home from work one day over the summer and my children had had a lemonade stand on the corner um, near our house. And we live in the city of Boston. And so uh, much to my surprise, they had made $47 at their, That's fantastic. At their lemonade stand. It's a little bit mind blowing. Were they upcharging? <laughs> I think that, <laughs> I don't know. There was a lot going on. I think there were some very friendly neighbors that maybe just gave them some money, but um, we That's probably awesome. still owe those folks thank you notes. But, um, and so you know, and so my six-year-old, who is really the man in charge, um, you know, I said to him, so what portion are we going to spend and what portion are we going to save? And you can have a conversation about saving, right? That's just, you take advantage of the moments that come up. Yeah, I think that's a great, you know, mm-hmm. it's great advice. And it's, you know, sometimes we feel it's common sense. Um, but sometimes to hear how other people handle things, it mm-hmm. can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um we're at the end of the show already. I told you how fast it would fast, go. Yeah. And listen, I'd love for you to give your contact information if anyone's listening and wants to sure. reach out to you for sure. advice. Or, yeah. um, Adrian Penta, you can find me at adrian.penta at bbh.com, or you can find us on um, the web at bbh.com slash women and wealth. Okay. And that's Adrian, A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E, mm-hmm. Penta, P-E-N-T-A. Excellent. Right. Thank you. Well, thank this you so great. much. It was a great conversation. So fun. And uh, really grateful for you to share your own personal story with our listeners. I'm sure that they took something away from it. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. Uh, please visit our website for all things related to the show at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Have a great week, everyone.